Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. Today we are talking about questions of honor. When do the ends justify the means? What is the burden of kings? And how do all these questions play out in the Stormlight series by Brandon Sanderson? All that and more with special guest Rob McKenzie. This will be a lot of great material for those of you who love the books. And for those of you who have no idea what we're talking about, don't worry. The questions that come from these books are pretty universal and we'll be making sure to broaden that conversation. All that and more after this commercial break, over which we have no control. Welcome back. I'm Matthew, your host. And as I said, I'm joined by my guest, Rob McKenzie. Rob has been on a, a number of episodes so far, but especially he's been a returning guest on these books of the Stormlight Archive series by Brandon Sanderson. Rob and uh, Jacob are the ones who really introduced these to me and really got me into the idea of how these books touch on some of the questions that are just so fundamental to ethical questions in almost every superhero or fantasy or sci-fi genre. So, Rob, how are we doing today? I'm doing pretty well. I'm really, really excited for Rhythm of War, and I'm just such a huge fan of the series and what forces me to think about it. Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah. No, I know uh, every time I talk to you about it, I start out thinking like, okay, I don't know how many people know these books. I don't know if we're going to... And then you just start talking to me about the issues that are being raised. And it, it, it really kind of fits for me about how, how this is just such a perfect topic for our show. Yeah. Um, I, I will establish also from the beginning, Rob has read all of them and seems to have a somewhat encyclopedic knowledge of what's contained therein. I have read most of the first book and now all of the latest novella, Dawn Shard. A lot of the other books I have not read, but I've read a lot of summaries about them and, and talked with Rob and read quite a lot about them. So I... For the listeners, I hope we're going to give you quite enough for both those who have really sunk deep into these books. And again, for those of you who haven't, I think there's still going to be a lot to follow along with. Though I will say, if you are planning to read the books at some point, definitely hit pause now because we're going to spoil everything from the books that have been published up before these last couple weeks. I know that parts of Rhythm of War have been published online. Those we're going to avoid talking about because we want you to have um, no spoilers at all. But basically, for anyone who's getting ready to read Rhythm of War, we're going to be talking about what are the questions to look for, what are the things that, that we're thinking about as we look forward to that book. So, Rob, let me just start with what, what draws you to these particular series of novels? What makes you so excited about this new book coming out? The, so the, the Stormlight Archives, as a, as a structural thing, are about broken people and trying to be mm. better. The, the, the core conceit of most of the characters is that they have faith. The, three, the, the structure of the books is every book has a character having flashbacks to early mm-hmm. in their life during it, and so there's chapters that are set in the past. And the the characters are all are all imperfect. We're nor, like you you look at a hero like Superman, and Superman is a is a problematic hero in part because he's the only person you can trust with his right. power, and he doesn't really make a lot of moral mistakes unless they're like. It's like it, it, you can trust him not to make more mistakes, right. Generally, right? And you can trust him not to make like, oops, I you know didn't show up to my meetings on time or whatever kind of mistakes either. He's he's a he's a mm-hmm. paragon, right? And that's what you what you kind of expect and want heroes to be. But the the Stormlight Archives is about people that fail, that are broken, that have problems, and Brandon Satterson spends a lot of time making them real. So this um, is a world of Tony Stark's, not Steve Rogers. Yes, um, it, and it's 
it's a it's a world of people that are that are worse than Tony Stark. Mm. The um the the three flashback characters. One of them has crippling deep depression. Um, Kaladin. One of them has disassociative personality disorder. Shalon, and one of them is a tyrant, a guilty tyrant who has murdered a lot of people and now feel like. As one character points out, I think that you've become a good person just in time to go down with a sinking ship. <laughs> That's he's okay. <laughs> um, he's he wants to be better. Um, and he he was so racked with guilt that he turned into an alcoholic, and he he still doesn't know how he managed to raise a son that's a good mm. person. Oh, two sons that are really good people. Um, it's so because he he wasn't involved, but his wife died, and so then he had to had to pick up because she was the one who did who did most of that. But there's there's uh, people who have mobility issues. There are, and I don't want to lump that into the. I mean, it's a it's people that have, have right. problems, right? Mental mm-hmm. or physical. Um, there, there's people with mobility issues and missing arms, and there's there's drunks and cowards and deserters, and they. These are the people that are chosen to return honor to mankind, right? right? And it's it's uplifting and it's hard, and it hurts, and that's yeah. good, right? Like it, it's just there. There's deep and there's a lot going on, and then they have to swear oaths, and they they're like, I thought swearing the oath would make me a better person. It's slow. No, 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 no. You swear the oath. And then you try to be a better person, and then you fail, and then you try okay. again. <laughs> it doesn't make it easier; it makes it well, harder. And there's two things that I want to jump in with. One is, and I, I appreciate you made this distinction. Um, <clears throat> the way characters with disability are written in these books, it's not that like they are just as morally broken as, as everyone else. That that's a very different thing. Um, but but I think what you're pointing out, which is a very important point, is that the there's obviously a lot of this is a book about war. This is a book about struggle, and mm-hmm. there are characters who are physically, you know have real problems because of that. Um, I was incredibly struck, and I think this is part of why you recommended this to me, the novella Dawn Shard, the primary character is a uh, person who has, uh, is a person who does not have the use of their legs. Uh, I believe they've been paralyzed through a... Uh, yeah, through a spinal injury. She jumped off a mountain. Um, well, no, she jumped off right, a Right, yeah, as, as but, part of one of the, yeah. the battles or attacks. No, 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 oh, okay. no! That, that's the, that's the real trick. She did it to win a trade. Oh, okay. All the more so then. <laughs> she she considers it the price that she paid in order to successfully execute this trick. Gotcha. Well, and that, that adds even more depth. And the, the reason I bring it up is, for me as a disabled person who does not have one leg, I have never related to a character more. And we'll, we'll talk about that more later. But I think that the way that that disabled character was written, especially in a fantasy world where there's so often the trope of magic or science or alien tech or whatever can heal disability um the way that Mm -hmm. her character was written is so different from that so we'll definitely get back to that but in terms of the um the core questions i the other thing i was gonna say is i really like this idea of the oaths because i do think that one thing that can be frustrating about a lot of genre media is that you do have a character have this sort of you know saw Paul on the road to Damascus moment where the scales fall from their eyes. They see the, the wickedness of their ways. They make a promise to do better. And all of a sudden everything's better. 
And that's just not real. I think that what happens most often, I know I've done this and I think most people have, is you say, okay, I have this bad habit. I need to break that habit. I am going to promise myself I'm going to no longer do that habit. Three weeks later, shit, I did that thing again. I hurt somebody again. I hurt myself again. I, you know, whatever it is. And so I love this idea of the oath is not the end of the ethical journey. It's the beginning of it. It's the, I've committed myself to this. And now I have to struggle to do that because it's not going to be easy. And yes, and that is that is explicitly called out in Oathbringer, the the most recent book, mm-hmm. which um, was is going to be a lot of our focus. Um, so Dalinar is is the tyrant, right? He is the the greatest warrior in the world. He's he was the hammer that that his brother used to forge a, a kingdom, right? And he he has the blood of of many people, including many innocents. Um, his they, they arrived to a city, things went badly, and um, the his his punchline to to how he was going to deal with it was during parlay, I told him that his widows would weep for what would happen here to everyone. I was wrong. They will not weep, for there will be no one left to weep. Oof. And they they the city is in a rift in the ground, and they pour oil into it and burn it and kill everyone. They they leave no one alive. He says people will be afraid to build here for the vengeful spirits of the dead, and he he's pruned by cultivation. He goes to a god and asks, "The thing that I want, the boon that I want, is forgiveness." And cultivation says, "I can't give that. Right? Only you can give that." I'm about growth. I'm I'm about the, the things of nature. And so I will prune you. These memories will come back, but you will have the chance to grow, to, to be able to deal with them. And makes him forget all of like a, a host of bad things. Um, his wife was trapped in the city at the time and he didn't know it and she died. Mm. And he was, he's racked with grief, can't deal with anything, and it's all taken away. He can't remember his wife at all. That's the cost that she takes. Right. Is he? She deletes his wife from his memory. He knows that she exists, but she's a blank spot, and he can't hear her name. When someone speaks speaks her name, he can't hear it. Oh wow! But then, then later, he's offered a deal by a different god. I would like to take your pain away. You can you can be the great warrior that you were, the the man that you know was the hammer that conquered conquered Alethkar, the land of conquering kingdoms. All you have to do is do it. And I'll take all your pain away. And Dalinar's response is, this is a journey. I'm on a journey to be better. You can't have a journey without a beginning. I started it bad. Right. I want to be a better man. I can't abandon the things that I did, because those are the starting point of my journey. You cannot have my pain. The God says, be, don't, don't be unreasonable. I granted you the, the thrill of victory that, that drove you on to this. I was there. I, that was the reason for it. And Dalinar says, no, they're they're my decisions. Right. You were there, but I have to take responsibility for what I've done. I have to start this journey one step at a time. The most important step is always the next one, and the journey is more important than the destination. the The destination is the goal, mm-hmm. but everybody comes to the same goal. Every man dies. Right. And that's that's such an interesting story because I admit, like, when you're telling me about that. 
your description of Dalinar does not sound like someone whose redemption arc I want to get behind. You know, he sounds like he's coming from a very, very awful place. That That's the thing, is you're introduced to Dalinar most of the way through this journey already. Dalinar at the beginning of Book 1 is respected as the only honorable and noble man in all of Althakar. And he is so noble and honorable that at the end of Book 1, he trades... Uh, so a shard blade is a, is a magical sword, right? right? That, that can cut through anything. Um, it, 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 it severs the soul of any living thing, and it cuts through any physical object. It's lighter than a normal sword, and they are... They're they're irreproducible. You cannot make more. Right. There there are, by Dalinar's estimation, less than one hundred shard blades in the world. They are they're the they are as expensive as kingdoms. Right. They're, they're right. pretty amazing swords. And so he, he yes. trades his. He trades his for the lives of the lowest five thousand slaves in Sidious's army. Hmm. Or sorry, the bridge cruiser two thousand. He trades them for two thousand people. The lowest people who, like, Sidious treats as cannon fodder. His, his, literally, it, his, it, he says that the goal of a bridge man is to die. He trades them for the bridge, he trades it for the bridge crews. Right. And it's, it's the, it's the powerful payoff scene. This is after Sidious betrays him. And, and Kaladin brings back his bridge crew, saves Dalinar, comes in, and uh, they go to Sidious, and Sidious is like, Oh, well, I know that I told a bunch of lies to everybody about you getting ambushed and killed, even though I was the one who betrayed you. Um, you can't start a fight with me now, because it would start a war between the inside the kingdom, start a civil war. So, I guess I'm safe. Dalinar's like, Dalinar summons a shard blade, mm-hmm. sticks it in the ground. Sidious is like, or Dalinar first offers. He offers to buy the bridgeman. He goes, I want to buy your bridgeman. I, I want to buy them for a hundred times the price of a good slave. Mm. Sidious goes, no, I want to keep them. And Dalinar so then summons his shard blade, stabs it to the ground, and he goes. Sidious goes, "You're threatening me." And he goes, "No, it's a trade." Interesting. This sword, this priceless sword, for all your bridge, I would like them all. And I think that's such an interesting story techni- storytelling technique because I think you're right. If you've already met the character in all of that goodness, then mm-hmm. going back, um, I mean, to what it reminds me a lot of is uh, you've seen Avatar: The Last Airbender, yes. I have not. We talk about this every time, okay. and I keep on starting it and then not going through with it. <laughs> I, I, J- J- our mutual friend Jacob is such an evangelist for it that I always forget anyone he knows can have not watch everybody, it. <laughs> it. Like, everybody talks about it. I, I should watch it. I have a desire to watch it. I just I read more than I watch things for the most part. I, I'm so. gonna, do you mind if I give you a very, no, very no, no. generalized... Spoil away. Spo- okay. it's, it's, spo- it's spoil as specific as you want. Okay. Like, it's past the statute of limitations. Well, there's a character in it who I feel is very much what you're talking about. He's a character named um, Uncle Iroh, who's introduced yep. as this, you know, the veteran of war who has seen the worst of things in war and it's made him into this very kind, very loving... You know, firm, but a person who like is basically the moral guide for someone else on their story of of, of retribution, mm-hmm. and is just very much a, I'm always going to forgive you. I'm always going to be here for you. I want to I want to see the best in you. I mean, you've seen the thousand memes out there about you know be the yep. person that Uncle Iroh believes you can be. Um, yes, and we learn at a later point that before he had this awakening, he was you know a horrible military leader who would joke with his family about. If I can just slaughter these people faster, I'll be home faster. Um, and there's a whole interesting, like, the ethics of how we come to understand characters there. Because I think in both of those cases, if you met the character while they were doing those atrocities, 
reading a story about their personal redemption when you're like, well, but what about all your victims? I think would be a lot harder. But but it's such an interesting thing when you introduce them at that later point of the story and then say, okay, we're going to let you go back now that you know that he gets to someplace different. But let's remind you what a bad place he started from. Right. And the the structure is such that, like, in book one, that you only see Dalinar as, you know, the consummate soldier and the the noble, honorable general. And then in book two, he's starting to try to forge an alliance and no one will trust him. None of the other kings. Mm. They're like, I, I get what you're trying to do, but I'm not letting your armies into my kingdom. Like, <laughs> you can't, like, you can't use diplomacy to save yourself some some bloodshed. It just doesn't happen. Right. Right. And it, that persists in book three. And then you, when you see the flashbacks, and his flashbacks consist of him with fire and the sword cleansing huge swaths and, like, he, like, just laying waste to cities. And he's like, how many people did I kill? Mm. And the thrill is not sated <laughs> because it's a supernatural thrill of battle that can't be sated. It's it's unending bloodlust and he's but he, he needs to have that too because um from a from a story structural perspective there's a trick that you can do so the there's all these spirits around in the world right they're they're spread they're the spirits of all sorts of things and they love the thing that they're the spirit of mm-hmm. so there's wind spread that love to to fly and play in the wind and there's fire spread that are attracted to fire and there's ones of emotions um Agony Spren, uh, Fear Spren, and the there are some some powerful Spren called the Unmade that are corrupted by Odium, the 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 villain, mm-hmm. and the Thrill is one of those, and it is a it is a semi sentient force that creates the thrill of battle, that that unending bloodlust in people. It's the secret advantage that that Alethkar has is that the thrill has just sapped in Alucard for millennia, right? Mm-hmm. And created bloodlust amongst their peoples, which makes them the greatest warriors in the world. And Dalinar knows it better than anyone else. It, he is its favorite servant. He Because he is the, the, the most bloodlusted of warriors. And he's abandoned it. Through, he hasn't been in battle for... When is the last time that he feels the thrill? He feels the thrill early in book two, and then by the end of book three, he hasn't gone into battle. Right. He's abandoned it. He's decided to become diplomat, right? And then the they, the Odium brings the thrill to play in a in the big climactic battle at the end of Oathbringer. And so then Dalinar says, you can trap Spren. You use this to make magically powered devices. You need a, you need a gem that can contain it. I have this perfect gem that we can contain it in. And, but to do that, you must draw it to something, something that it loves. If you have a fire spring, you bring it close to intense fire, and then you use, you draw it into the fa- into the gem. So you must offer it something that it loves. Right. And so he walks out into the middle of the thrill with the, with the gem, and he goes, he remembers every moment of, of bloodlust that he's now grown past, that now pains him. And he goes, I understand you. Got it. So, and then draws it into the gem at the big climactic moment at the end of Oathbreaker. So he, they need someone like Dalinar in order to be able to even contest with it. Right. But at the same time, 
he had to be horrible to get to that point. And so here's where a lot of the questions about the the means justifying the ends and and does that work or not come up because right and I think again this is this is an issue that a lot of science fiction deals with of you know do do you do you, do you use the monster to catch the monster kind of things you know can can you bring that evil onto your side if and granted he's a very special case because he's trying so hard not to be that anymore mm-hmm. um, and so for his character what as we start rhythm of war. What are kind of some of the ethical questions you think that are going to – what are the things you're curious to see how they get played out with his character? So one of the things that he has going on is he has to learn to give away power because he's never been able to give up power to anyone before. Mm-hmm. And he needs to learn to make to let other people make decisions. He, is, he functionally usurped his, his nephew's throne because he couldn't deal with other people – like he he couldn't deal with somebody who he perceived as less competent or powerful than himself making a decision. Got it. Right? He couldn't he couldn't give it away, and so um, he he's go, he has this problem of he's going to have to cede a lot of power in his in his alliance that he's making with multiple rulers, and he's going to have to let other people take battlefield command, even though he's the greatest general in the world. Right. And, and to be clear, so people understand, we're not at this point. We're not talking about like. One kingdom fighting another. This is a Middle Earth type. We're we're, we're uniting the kingdoms to, to fight against the the great evil that will destroy the universe. The, kind of thing. The, yes, this is well. The, yeah, it's the end of the world. They call it a desolation. The so structurally, there's there's two there's two sentient species on this planet. There besides the Spren, some of whom are sentient. Right. There's a there there's human and there's what they call um, Parshendi. Uh, the Parshendi are. Uh, they have a carapace. They are, they call them shell heads in a derogatory fashion. They have, so they have a shell that they can grow and they can t- take different forms by bonding different spren to the gem heart that's in the center of their chest. And they can contain a spren in their, in their chest and that changes their shape. So they have war form and they have art form and they have nibble form and they have work form and they have all these different shapes in there. They, right. they hear rhythms that they, that they can all attune to in order to, like uh, the, the rhythms of the world around them are are audible to them, and so the Parshendi, a long time ago, one of the bondsmiths figured out a trick. They severed the connection of the Parshendi and the identity of the Parshendi from existing. I don't know how they did this. It is an impressive level <laughs> of magic, but. What they did, the Parshendi were rendered into something called slave form. They are they are dull, they are stupid, and they are the perfect obedient slaves. And they've been enslaved for a long time, and they're ubiquitous. Everyone ha- every city, every everyone who has resources has some Parshendi slaves because they're the perfect slaves. They don't they know a couple words here or there, but they're super dull, and they don't talk back, and they just do what you tell them to do, and they'll work constantly when you give them work. To. Right. But they're they're smart enough to take care of themselves as well. They will they will raise their own children, and they will take care of their own debt. That's the two things that they do. And Odium, the big bad, restored their connection via um, via some shenanigans. All the Parshendi were restored back to having society. They gained the societal trappings of the people that they were living with mm. because the, there were the Parshendi from that region. The Alkar or Parshendi are more warlike. The Azuris Parshendi are more bureaucratic. Got it. Right. And they're they're just people, except that they've been oppressed for um, 
millennia. Four thousand yeah. years. Yeah. So they are um, justifiably more than a little angry <laughs> at being enslaved for long enough, where whatever civilization they had has been deleted and replaced with the civilization of the humans, and being slaves for generations upon generations upon generations. And they're the they're they're the angry over, overriding arm. Right. They they want to they want to wipe out humankind for what human, the humans have done to them. And it's a it's an existential threat to humans, right? And I can't, from a structural perspective, personally, probably aren't wrong. Yeah, but as you're saying that, it I I'm having trouble seeing how they be, I, I I can very much understand how they become the big bad, but the whole they seem like they're very much the most sympathetic characters in many ways. You know, the, well, the, it, so they it, it's it's all complicated because so. One of the big plot points in Oathbringer, and something that we have to look forward to in Rhythm of War, how they deal with it, is the Parshendi are native to this planet. Humans aren't. Mm. Uh, humans showed up as refugees, and the Parshendi took them in, and then the the arrival of the second group of humans. So the past has to be super complicated, and nobody has good records of it, right. because it's all like 10,000 And again, I don't want to go too far into the details here, because yeah. I, I think we can kind of lose but, people who are... Uh... I'm going to say right. that again. But, um, right. But the humans are invaders, is what it comes down right. to. So the humans invaded this planet. And the Parshendi figured, like, allied with Odium. Who is a villain? Odium is, Odium is the, the, he's the aspect of God's hatred. Mm. And, and God's divine wrath is removed from every other context. He is hatred, he is wrath, he is passion. And so, he, they allied with Odium, and they figured out a way to become immortal. And so some of them are immortal. But their immortality comes at a price. They have to take over the body of another Parshendi in order to continue. Right. They they reincarnate into somebody else, and so they're 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 villains. They have to kill people to keep going on in order to prosecute their war across millennia. Well, and so they they're defending their homeland, but they're doing it in a bad way. Is that good? Well, that's such an interesting story, and I think it's it's um, in many ways it reminds me uh, interestingly enough of uh, Battlestar Galactica. Because mm-hmm. this is the idea that often is brought up is that, you know, humanity had the Cylons and humanity treated the Cylons quite badly for some time. Um, yep. You know, not the, all, all the ideas about, like, you know, what are the ethics of artificial life and, and uh, robotic life and things like that. And then the Cylons basically decided that the only way to, to deal with this was to wipe out humanity. And so one of the things I think the show does so well is it's focused on humanity and the Cylons are the bad guys but that um, – and, and a, Captain Adama says in the very first episode, you know, this is about our our sins coming home. Our um, – mm-hmm. and I, it feels like there's a similar story to be told here of this evil is very much one that the humans created. And that this is a yes. story of an oppressed people turning towards um, – and maybe it's like getting suckered in or whatever it is. But like embracing something evil in order to, to fight their oppression. Um, I mean even – yeah, the – so much of the story is like, ah, I, I kind of want to write the story and be on the side of the Parshendi because it's like, right. why, why are we limiting the... It, f- but but I can understand how in this world, like, it's very much a story it, of corruption it, in that way. Right. And, but Sanderson doesn't treat them as villains either. It's actually one of one of the core struggles that Kaladin has. So he's a wind runner. He, his oaths um, beyond the first three... Uh, or so his first... The first oath, the first oath is always life before death, strength before weakness, journey before destination. And then all the orders break into their own individual oaths for the other tiers. And his is, um, 
I will protect those who can't protect themselves. That's the, the first um, separate oath of the Windrunners. And this next one is, I will protect those that I hate so long as it is right. Mm. And then he's like, I, I have a problem here. He spends some time with some Parshendi that just uh, got their connection refounded and have identity again. And then he encounters them later on the other side of a battle and he can't do it. It's like, I can't dehumanize them. That's the only way that I could I could deal with protecting people through battle. Oh, that's so fascinating. And he's like, they're, they're not trying to kill us because they're like evil monsters. Some of them are evil monsters that have been corrupted across millennia, but the ones here, they just want to be free. Right. That's all I wanted when I tried to tried to break out of slavery. Like, I can't do it anymore, guys. Like, I... Well, I, I admit, that makes me feel a lot better about it, because as you were discussing it, I, I was kind of getting to a place of... A story about the oppressed people doing evil things to fight their oppression is not one that seems super fitting in this day and age. But I, so right. I like that the, that Sanderson is really complicating that and saying, "Let's this isn't as black and white as many people would want to see it as good versus yeah. evil." Yeah, the, the, there are clear villains. Odium's a villain. He showed up. So there's these God broke into sixteen parts since everybody sixteen people each took a part of them and they all got an aspect. So there's I talked about cultivation. I've talked about odium and honor is another one, mm. right? And honor and cultivation came to this planet, and then odium followed with humans. So, with this, it, it, so honor and cultivation were on the planet with the Parshendi. And then a bunch of humans and odium showed up together later. And the Parshendi ended up aligned with odium because it's unclear. Right. Why, why did they why did they join with this with the villain? And it, like the, the the people who know don't want to talk about it. They're the they're the Parshendi running around out in the universe. And Odium is the big bad. He he went around and started killing these other shards of God that have these other aspects. And so he's got a hit list and he's killed three of them already before before getting to this point in this book. Um and now he's trapped. Somehow honor and cultivation trapped him. Right. And all he wants to do is be free. And kill people other shards. He wants to be the most powerful thing. Right. He's the big bad. He's he's a, it, like he's he's the villain. The Parshendi are probably dupes. Yeah. Honestly. And it's hard because they they have to make these decisions that and they find out about all of this when they translate ancient writings that they couldn't before. And they read it out and they're like, I think we're the baddies. And they they have this problem. So the Knights Radiant are founded on these oaths. When the Knights Radiant recovered that information um, about uh, whereas Erethedon was about 2,000 years in the past, um, they gave up their oaths. The Knights Radiant abandoned their oaths and abandoned the Knights Radiant and set down their swords and disbanded the Knights. Mm -hmm. And that caused a lot of other problems. It killed all the spren they were bonded with. When they broke their oath, it killed the, the spirit that they were bonded But they decided that was better than, than serving these powers that they thought weren't justified. Right. And now the, the new raids are recovering their oaths and they find out about this and they're like, well, the, the old radiants weren't idiots, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> they set down, they set down this burden because they couldn't deal with it. Right. Should we do the same thing? So, and so where does in the, in the, in the coming book, how do we think this question is going to be dealt with? Because I think like there's a really interesting story to be told there of, you know, 
and this is one that I think we've talked about on the show a lot of who's your real enemy, you know, and when there right. is this evil influence or something and it's taking others and turning them against you and often turning them against you because they feel oppressed and they have a very legitimate yep. anger and, you know, this evil force right. is the only one that yeah. listens to their anger. Do you think there's a chance of that some kind of a the Parshendi and the humans like being able to unite or at least rec- recognize the all the problems and where in what in in how that oppression had played out and be able to help the Parshendi under you know move away from odium yeah. and the humans move away from thinking they're the enemy? Yes, I think it's going to be muddy, and this is a this is a big problem is that because there's these immortal Parshendi that keep re-inhabiting Parshendi, um, they were locked away and sealed away until the until some stuff happened. And now they're starting to return and, like, reincarnate another Parshendi. They're the ones that are driving and prosecuting the war. If they weren't there, then you could deal with reparations, right? You could, like, if Dalinar makes the offer, he's like, we could partition Alucard. We could make a Parshendi high prince, mm. right? Give you your own segment of the kingdom. Um, and the the Azish were, uh, like, the... The Prashendi organized and, and partitioned their government because their government's a bureaucracy. And so they they went and they, they said, all right, we're going to set up here outside the city and we're going to put together a partition of grievances, including the fact that we were never compensated from limited of work and we need to work this out. And the Azish were like, we are negotiating with you? We didn't believe you were intelligent enough to hold conversations. Uh, but we can deal with that. We have we have methods for doing that. We have bureaucracy. And then the Prashendi got grabbed by their by their listener gods and dragged off and told, no, 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 we're fighting a war here. Right. And so, like, who who are the bad guys there, right? The the listeners say that the, or the, the listener gods, sorry, the, 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 the fuse, the things that, that have come back are saying, you know, we want to free you. That's what they want. They want to wipe out the humans of the person who can have the whole world back again to themselves and not have to worry about them. And is that, can you make a deal mm-hmm. with people? Can you can you say, well, what are we responsible for? We like how many generations does does guilt persist? Right. Right. None of the people living, or that's none of the people in power living had any idea that the Parshendi had been cracked into a race of slaves through magic. They had no idea that humans weren't natural to the planet. Right. And is that ignorance ever addressed? Because I do think that there's something of, you know, if I go through my life seeing a less an other race and thinking, oh, I've always been taught they're stupid, they're less than human, it's okay to enslave them, etc. Mm-hmm. On some level, I can claim, well, that's what I was always taught. But yep. but really, then there's a question of like, how much willful ignorance and how much sort of shutting down of your own like moral compass do you have? And granted, I'm, we're talking about a completely yeah. different world, but. I'm wondering if there's some kind of like coming to accept the idea of like how have we of humanity in this world not asked the questions we should have and just assumed these things that allowed us to use the Parshendi to make our lives better without really recognizing that our, our mythologies about them, our stories about them do not actually add up. Right. And, they, and because most people, and they, they make the point, most people aren't curious, most people aren't scholars, right? They're just living their lives. And so if the Parshendi are always dull, they don't have any reason to question it, right? Right. If a Parshendi can, can, you know, barely tell you its name, and its name is one, and the other Parshendi the guy owns is two, uh, it, like, there's a lot of scenes like this in the first book where somebody tries to have a conversation with a Parshendi and gets exactly that far. What is your name? One. What's his name? Two. 
Right. Do you want to be free? And they just stare at it. They can't. They can't comprehend it. Right. So they, it, 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 are they? It, like I agree, it's it's morally unjust to enslave people, but they they don't consider them people. They consider them livestock. Right. Is it morally unjust to to raise cows? Some would definitely argue yes. I I, I agree. I, I there's plenty of people that may, would make a very very compelling case that it's morally unjust to have livestock. Right. Uh, but the it, it, it's a difficult question, right? Right. And and book four is the, the book we're about to get is book four of what's planned to be a five part series, right? So Brandon Sanderson has big dreams. He wants it to be a five part series and then a big time skip and then five more books at the same <laughs> And so he he wants basically to conclude the arc in two more books, which if, on his publishing schedule I believe puts um whatever the book is sometime in twenty twenty three. Okay. Um, and so he's, he's trying to resolve some of these issues and trying to, to bring to the front some of this because there's, so we, we're talking about the, the Prussian, the Prussian slavery and the Prussian being slaves. Do you pay them reparations for this? You build a whole civilization out of it, basically. Right. Um, and then the follow-up question, they got up and walked. That's an economic disaster, mm-hmm. right? This is as if. As if cars decided to leave. Right. Right. And we use them for a lot. And so what what would happen, right? And so then we have this other ethical question. How do you resolve that? Right. Yeah, it's the how how what do you do when a house that is built on evil starts to fall apart because the evil is being revealed, you know? Um right. and I think this has been In, uh, I mean, it's a question, you know, it was a, it was the, one of the arguments against ending slavery for a long time in our own world. And, and mm-hmm. obviously there was like economic hardship and, but, but of a good kind, you know, it was necessary. Um, and I, so I can right. see how, yeah, in this, this world, it, it creates a real problem of folks wanting to say like, okay, we need to do this right thing, but also what happens when we just take this away? Well, and, and they've been taken away and now they have to deal with these problems. They've been dealing with them a little bit, but now they have somebody who really wants to, to wrestle with. The, the, the heretic, um, Yasna, she doesn't believe in God. Mm. Um, and that's weird because they had actual magic and like manifestations of power. And she's like, it's not that I don't believe that the Almighty exists. It's that I don't believe that he's the moral authority that causes everything to happen. I believe that you can be moral without believing in the Almighty being God. Right. And so she's now at the end of book, at the end of Oathbringer, she becomes queen of Alethkar. And now she has to wrestle with this problem of so there there were jobs that normal people didn't do fetching fetching and carrying water for mm-hmm. instance that was a Parshendi slave job now you have to have people do it because you still need to do the job right right you want to pay them are you going to make a union for this right and there are and there are human slaves because because Parshendi all being slaves implies that slavery is a thing that you can have right and so they have slaves. Well, you just freed all of these slaves. Why aren't you freeing the human slaves, right? right. Are you going to impress more people into slavery? Are you going to deliberately conquer another kingdom to, to restore the, the the missing economic engine of slavery that you have? Because what are you going to do? Press your own people into service? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a very important story there about how it can be through, like, actual legalized slavery or it can just be, like, you know, in a country like ours where 
well, there are um, immigrants who can come in and do the work that no, you know, good thinking mm-hmm. American would ever want to do. And you, you create an economic underclass or whatever it is. Yep. Um, so, yes, I'm very curious how uh, my, 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 my own personal goal is that I, I, I do want to get caught up with these books and read this fourth one. Uh, and I'd be very interested to see how this question gets resolved, because I think on the one hand, it's there's a part of me that just rebels at the very idea of asking the question, because I think that it, anything that seems to lead to, well, there'd be too much economic damage to stopping this evil, so we shouldn't stop the evil, like that's always one I want to reject. But it, but it sounds right. like at least that Sanderson's addressing it from perspective of, of course, this has to change, but that does cause problems and there needs like and that the people, the broken, but trying to do their best people who are trying to figure out what to do, going through what those struggles are is a very interesting story. Right, and like the a lot of the the, the fascinating bit about, um, so for instance, Yasna as a character, uh, she is, she's the. She might be the most moral, like, or sorry, the most ethical person in the in the books. Um, she 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 will make big ethical examples, but she she decided mm-hmm. that things are right and wrong, and it doesn't matter whether or not the Almighty Honor says that they're right or wrong. They're right or wrong independently. Right. So that means that he's not the decider. He's not the guy, which means he's not. The moral authority. The moral authority stands outside of God. And if that's the case, then why are we listening to him? Yeah, that, that's also, that's such an interesting story as well, because I know so much of what goes into these stories is the idea of, like you said, the codes, the honor. Yeah. And mm-hmm. what I always wrestle with, and I like the stories that explore this, is anytime you tell me that I've got a set of rules that if I follow them, I can be a moral person... The question always becomes what happens when there's a gray area? What happens when there's something yeah. that doesn't quite fit into either rule one or rule two, but falls somewhere in the middle? And it sounds like that's also a struggle that, that she at least is saying, like, that that's a problem of these codes, that, that they're not going to actually address right. everything. Right. And her her order, we haven't seen any of her oaths. Um, it is clear that she has sworn more oaths than anybody else in the world. She's been working as a secret night radiant for six years by the time the, the the main timeline opens. Like, so she's, she's way far ahead, but the problem is that she doesn't dare expose that she's a knight because there are, there's a, there's somebody who has a strict moral code. Um, the heralds are immortal and male, the skybreaker is their, their oaths are to follow the law. Right. They, they are, they are lawful neutral, Right. And he is the head of their order, and he believes that if people start swearing the old oaths, it will bring about a desolation, and humankind will be will be scourged from the earth. Mm. And so he spends his time hunting down people who are swearing the oaths, people who are starting to become radiant. And he finds something that they did that was technically wrong, um, no matter how far in the past, because justice has no expiration date, no matter how... It, 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 like he finds some reason to to execute them if he's able or imprison them or remove them from the capability of bonding a spread. And so she's working in secret because she she's figured this out. She's like, there have to be other people that have been trying to swear. Right. And this this avatar of impersonal justice is going to hunt me down and kill me. And so she's been swearing these oaths and acting as a radiant and then not. 
broadcasting it to anybody, and then being treated as a heretic by the church because she abandoned her belief in somebody who she believes she's never she believes is never the ultimate moral authority. And so she it, she is she gets put into more and more spotlight. She she's represented as the perfect logical person, and then every time she gets a scene where she gets where you get inside her head, she is so terrified of the whole of everything. She sees farther than everyone else, and that means she sees horrors on the horizon. And she doesn't believe that she's capable of doing it. Right. And she, her friend tells her, you're not like other people. You are, you move to, to reason and logic, and you are as, as unyielding as a friend is. We don't make these kinds of changes. We don't, we don't change our morality based on it being a friend or a foe or anything else. We, like, we, we are. We're forces of nature. And you were like that. And she's like, I don't think I actually am. Hmm. And so she has problems even enforcing her own her own fairly strict ethical code. Right. Right? Because sometimes she just can't bring herself to do it. She she gets to a point at the end of Oathbringer where she believes she is to execute her cousin Renarin. She believes that Renarin has been corrupted by Odie. And she comes to Renarin and then she just can't do it. She's like, I can we fix you? Can we can we can we salvage the situation without me having to kill you? Right. I'm willing to send assassins to save my family, to, to protect the throne of my brother. Would I, would I kill? Would I kill his cousin? Hmm. He's a member of my family. I don't think I can do it. And that in and of itself and, is such an interesting ethical question because, on the one hand, like you're like, okay, good, you can see some room for moral compromise and the ability to sort of understand that your your ethical code doesn't have to be absolute. Yep. But if it's absolute for the people you care about, if 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 you're allowing it to not be absolute only for the people who you have a personal relationship with, like that's not better. <laughs> that's a very different right. kind of problem. Right. And I think that that's actually a big moment of growth for her, even though that and that's going to be really explored in the next book, because she doesn't get really any. She doesn't get a viewpoint after that. Hmm. And so she doesn't have to wrestle with the fact that she. She she'll have made she makes decisions in the past to send assassins to protect her family, and then she won't kill a member of her family, even though they believe she believes he's in a worse situation, he's a more compromising situation than, than what she's assassinated for. And so, she she's going to have to wrestle with that. That's going to have to be a thing, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, I hope that she gets more viewpoints because Yasin is incredible. Yeah, in the part of the first book that I read, she was definitely one of the most interesting characters, and so. This journey that she's gone through sounds like it's really yeah. really something to focus on. So let, there's so much about this book, that, about these series of books we can go into. I, I want to make sure we don't go too long. Let's let's look about specifically at rhythm and war. And uh, we've we've touched on some of the ethical questions that are going to be raised, especially in terms of um, like what who are the villains. But let, let's just start with there. So who who do you think are going to be the villains of this book? Is, and is it going to be about this idea of the Parshendi? sort of shifting out of the realm of villain and, and focusing on Odium? you think there's another direction it's going to go? Yeah, so Odium's obviously the big bad, but the compromised people are, the the people who believe they're doing things for the greater good are the most interesting ones. And Sanderson keeps killing them. <laughs> um, and so, like, at the end of book one, you are totally certain that Sidious is going to continue to be a thorn in the side of everyone. Yeah. And he gets killed during, like, the last chapter of book one. And so it leaves you hanging for book two. Like, who's going to be the big bad? Right. Like, I thought Sidious was going to be a villain. Um, and so the, there's only one left. 
there's Teravangian, the the most pragmatic ruler in the world. Um, he he asked for the capacity to save what could be saved of mankind. And he went to the he went to the night watcher who gives boons and veins, and he asked for this capacity. And he wakes up every day, um, it's somewhere on the scale of very caring to very intelligent, and they're inversely proportional. Proportional. The oh more <laughs> intelligent he becomes, the less he cares. The more he cares, the less intelligent he is, and it's different every day. Right. And one day he woke up ten sigmas beyond a normal man, and he wrote uh, something that they now call the diagram, uh, a plan to save as many people as could be saved. The thing is that he had no he had no care when he did that. And so it is callous. He sends assassins after kings. He starts civil wars in order to gain the throne of another kingdom. He and he he makes this case to Dalinar that the job of a king is to be the one who is morally compromised. Oh yeah. The it's a it is a very compelling argument, which is we ask someone to bear the guilt of our societal mistakes. Uh, he, they, they tell a parable where a, a king arrives to one of his outside lands and discovers that there were there, there were uh, five herdsmen, right? And they somebody had come across one of the herdsmen dying, and he said. Three of the other herds, just before he died, the last thing he said is that three of the other herdsmen killed him. So there's four left. There's four herdsmen, mm-hmm. right? And they they bring them together and they say, "Well, three of you are killers, and one of you is." And Dalinar and him are discussing this, and Teravangi goes, "So what? What solution for the book?" And Dalinar goes, "He tells it as a parable repeatedly, in the way of that, and he doesn't come to a good conclusion." And I, I don't know. Teravangi goes. Well, you have to execute all four. Hmm. It, it keeps them from murdering again. You have you have three murderers, and this assures that this will never happen. And Dalinar goes, I think that I couldn't I couldn't do that. I couldn't execute them. And Teravanchi goes, Well, that 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 makes sense. You believe that one innocent man is not a good trade for three guilty men. You you believe that 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 that's that that mixture is wrong, right? In order to execute them. And Dalinar goes, No, I don't. I think that we should always let all of the innocent people. Teravangian goes, but that can't be the case. We make laws to try to make sure this happens, but no matter how good your laws are, the men sit in judgment and we make mistakes. We don't always have all the information. Everything is messy. Eventually, you will try and kill an innocent man. If you if you are executing people. This is a deeply cynical, cynical person, <laughs> clearly. But... Ter- Teravangian is very cynical. And he goes, eventually, you will kill an innocent man. So you have to decide. You have to decide how, like, what at what point is it too much, right? right? And it, like, how, what is your mixture of guilt and innocence that is acceptable? How many, how many guilty men will you let free? You, you say you will let any number of guilty men free to, to save one innocent, but in that case, you wouldn't, you would never try anybody. You would never have any executions because then you guarantee that you would never execute an innocent. Person. And I can see how this becomes such an interesting question because it's one that I think. You know, any government in a real world, but also in fiction, has to wrestle with of, you know, where does the ideal and the reality match up? Um, and right. I think it's it's a 
um, in the Tudors, actually, which is, um, in theory, based on historical reality, although it's very fictionalized. but Very loosely, but yeah. <laughs> but there's actually a wonderful scene between um, a young King Henry VIII and Thomas Aquinas, who has been his very good friend and also a real moral guide. And yep. at one point, Thomas Aquinas is saying to him, you know, but but Henry, you're you're going against the moral ideals of humanism that you have been ascribing for so long. And Henry says, and he kind of tosses this off in kind of a joking way, but also serious. I forget the exact line, but somebody, the, equi- uh, the, the equivalent of when I was a scholar like you, I had the freedom of ideals. Now I must rule. Um, yes. And it's, I, I'm glad that you said that this person is like one of the biggest villains potentially, because I think th- there's some, there is something, some truth to that idea. But there's also something very dangerous because it can right. become very easy to, you know, where is the line between I am sacrificing my ideals in the absolute need of necessity versus I'm sacrificing my ideals in the name of convenience. Right. In Teravangian, because because the, the ultimate destruction of all humankind is what hangs in the balance, he gets to make every compromise, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, save who you can. Say who you get. What if that's only a dozen people? What if, Odium's a god, right? If you could, if you the choice between saving none and saving a dozen, well, any choice is any is better than none, right? Yeah. And and that's one of the and ways in which that, the when you have that threat of a you know cataclysmic, literally the end of the world, you're right. It it, it now is possible to justify almost anything, and I, right. I, I'd be very curious to see how you know what some of the pushback that that's going to get in this next book because. Right. There's also a question I think of: Do you, when have you compromised the world so much that it's no longer worth saving? You know, when is it a right. we still shouldn't cross these lines even in the face of this apocalyptic threat? Right. And Dalinar's take is that that sounds horrible because it does sound horrible to to be able to compromise yourself to 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 kill those three men even though you know, or to kill four men even though you know for sure one is innocent. Right. You are absolutely sure you're killing an innocent man to kill three murderers to keep you from killing again. And then Teravangian gives the punchline, which is I would execute all three. Hmm. And then I would cry every night for the one that I had to execute that was innocent. Because that's the other thing, is that he his capacity on the other end is he has infinite compassion. Yeah. And that's that but that's what makes it interesting, right? right? That's it, it's it's not he he hurts for the people that he can't save, and he only wants to save the people because he hurts for them. Right. And his his argument is that is that kings are by design the ones that have to make these hard moral choices and are asked to to lose their innocence and are asked to make these choices so that other people don't have to. Right. If the king makes the choice, it removes the moral responsibility from everybody else. Hmm. The executor, the the, the person who who wields the axe to execute those people is not morally culpable in his in his eyes. Yeah, because the king made the choice, and so so that 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 brings that that moral weight. He, his argument is that the fewest people possible should bear these terrible moral burdens. So this, which is a a compelling argument, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say it's one that I I would I would reject pretty thoroughly because I think I agree. It, it, but I think it's great that the books are kind of illustrating this because I think the danger of that is like the, the allowing yourself to give up moral culpability is, I think, a real danger of, you know, the 
I mean, when you say like the, the axeman doesn't have moral responsibility, the line that comes to my mind is because he was just following orders, you know, Correct. and the, um, as a contrast to this, my, my parents were lawyers and, um, my, my father used to tell me a lot about the, the idea of how in the criminal justice system, you know, if, if someone kills, you know, me, the case isn't, you know, Matthew against his killer or Matthew's family against a killer. It's, it's the state. It's the state yeah. Right. And it's the idea that whatever justice is done is done in the name of the state. And when I lived in California, California was a death penalty state. I'm personally very opposed mm-hmm. to the death penalty. And yep. I remember I, when, when the death penalty, when it was carried out and a number of our friends had, had protested against it, including myself. And we talked to others who, 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 were also against it, but they'd say, no, 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 but, but that's not my government. I didn't do that. And and I had to sort of talk with them about, no, that is our government. Our taxes support that. Our, mm-hmm. We are, that government represents us whether we want it to or not. And and so I think that's why I, I love this idea because that's, that's the easy path, you know, of being able to say right. the king did it, I didn't, instead of having that own moral responsibility. Right. And he wrestles with this over and over. Um, one of one of the characters tells another parable parable where a ship sails to an to a far off island and they discover a people who are perfect and wonderful and do everything right and then somebody screws up and trips and drops a basket of food and every and all the people in the city descend upon them and kill that person and they say why do you do that and they say well because the king has made this rule that anybody that is not perfect must be executed and that's why we're so perfect and so the, wow. the, 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 the but then the crew say, well, we need to talk to the king about this because that's bullshit, right? And the, the people go, well, you're not going to you're not gonna talk to the king. He's a, he's a hard ass, right? He lives in that tower over there and we didn't even talk to him because we're so afraid of him. Mm. And so then the crew go and they go up into that tower and they find the king's desiccated corpse. He's been dead for a decade. And nobody, everybody was lived in such fear of him that nobody that nobody would approach him. And so they just left him dead there in the tower without realizing he was dead. No one knew he was dead. Right. And they bring, come down and they tell the people. And they expect the people to be overjoyed that the cruel king that had ordered this draconian law had, were, would, would suddenly be excited. And instead, they started rioting and murdering each other arbitrarily. They collected one of the people and sailed away. And they said, well, why did, why did that happen? Why did everybody suddenly fall upon each other and start murdering each other? And the, the person said, well, if the king was dead, then you're responsible for all the murders that he committed. Oof. Yeah, that, 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 that sounds like it's been a really good one. Um, and so, but, but that's one of the things that he wrestles with is like, who's responsible? Like, ever, like, does responsibility divide or does it multiply or does it, does it rest upon certain shoulders? Mm-hmm. And that's a, it's a, it's a really tough question to wrestle with. And I think that's something that they have to wrestle with. Right. Because is are, are all the people responsible for the Prussian enslavement? Yeah, they didn't make that choice. Somebody, somebody thousands of years ago did. But they were participants but in it, and they were benefiters. Yeah, they're still participating and they're benefiting. Yep. Um, somebody else made the choice for them. They had no ability to control it, and they can't avoid having getting the benefit of a society that has this this free underclass, right? Free in a in a like a in an economic sense, right. not in a yeah. And so they, but the, the, yeah, they, there's the moral choice of of non choice, you know, of that they they yeah. all have to come to terms. Like you said, 
we we were responsible for this because we didn't stop it because we didn't speak up about it because we said the king made the decision the people in the ancient past made the decision whatever it is right um exactly we're passing in an hour and i want to make sure we do get some time to talk about dawn shard so is there one last oh, question yes. uh that you're really lo- looking forward to seeing how it gets explored in rhythm of war um so the 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 big thing that i want to see is there are some people who are responsible for some of these choices that are out there. How do you deal with them? The heralds are alive. They're immortal. They're mostly crazy. And by that, I mean, each one of them is mostly crazy. And all of them are crazy. Right. Um, but the the heralds exist. What Are they going to be put on trial? Um, like, a lot of the decisions are the result of those heralds making horrible choices, right? And sometimes, sometimes they were the only choices that they felt like they could make. But they still, they still made. Are they going to be put on trial? Are they going to be, are they going to be brought to justice? Mm. What does justice even mean at this point for somebody who made the decision ten thousand years ago and has been living with it ever since? Right. right? Uh, it's hard. Um, so I, I, I really look forward to, to dealing with some of the herald fallout. I can see that, that yeah, book. because that, that does become a thing of you know. Very much like what you talked about with Dalinar at the beginning of you've made these choices long ago. You are now a very different person. You're now doing very different things. But that doesn't erase the pain that was caused. It doesn't erase the, the, the death and the destruction that was caused. And and so what what is justice like for that? So, yeah, it sounds like it'll be a great question. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a bit now about this book, Dawn Shard, which is it's much more of a novella and it. Part of why I think I was really able to really get into it is it has a much smaller scope than the yes. other books, but is clearly helping to set up what's going to come. Um, and you'd recommend it to me in part because of how it deals with disability. And yeah. I, I want to just say a word about why it really struck me. And, and I we'll, we'll talk about the other characters for in a bit, but I want to just start by talking about uh, uh, Reeson, I think is how you pronounce her name, uh, spelled R-Y-S-N. As I said at the beginning, Risen, yeah. Reeson, something like that, Ryzen. Um, the, I, I spoke at the beginning and I've spoken before that what bothers me so often is that, you know, as a disabled person, my life is going to be made better by technology, but Mm -hmm. I will always be disabled. That will always be a fundamental part of my life. And there are questions, there are ways in which the smallest things in life will always be just a little bit different for me. And, and each disabled person, it is in some way as well for them. And so I like... You know, Matt Murdock is a disabled superhero, but in that world, his hearing is so good and his, ba- I mean, he basically has sonar for all intents and purposes. Right. He doesn't go through life dealing with the struggles that a blind person would. Um, Yoda is a character who, in theory, we, we, we show him as being somewhat, you know, having trouble getting around. He uses a cane. He walks slowly until there's a lightsaber battle and he can do basically Jedi parkour. <laughs> while fighting these mm-hmm. crazy battles. What I loved is that in, in Reason's story, her being disabled is a fundamental part of who she is, and there are attempts through the book to use technology... Well, first of all, just the questions that she asks and, and the struggles that she goes through. Even just in the first chapter, she deals with... Um, she's now in this position of authority, she's a captain of a ship, and then later the, the head of an expedition with someone else as a captain... And people give her great reverence, and part of that is they're rushing to help her whenever they can. 
Um, right. Anyone who's been around me and has seen me, hopefully politely, but sometimes rather forcefully, tell someone, don't push my wheelchair unless I've asked, please, um, knows that yep. this is something I very much relate to. And I think I know many other people with disabilities have that someone's clearly trying to be nice and trying to be helpful and not realizing how much they're hurting you. And, and so I love that they deal with that. But especially what got me is about halfway through the book, there's this attempt to use the magic of the shards and the, the, the kind of magic slash technology, however you want to describe it, to basically allow her um, the what we would call today a wheelchair to levitate and to fly. Um, right. And just it vastly increased mobility for somebody who's a paraplegic. Exactly. Right. And but what strikes me is it's vastly increased mobility, but it's in no way a cure. You know, it right. is now she has the ability to get this height, but she still has to do things to account for the fact that her legs still don't work. You know, it's not a this magic solves everything. Um, you know, I it, just in my life, the technology of wheelchairs and prosthetic legs has gotten much better. That's great. But it doesn't change mm-hmm. that fact of who I am. And especially when I caught this was about two thirds through the book. She does have this sort of like encounter, and we try not to spoil too much, but she encounters some other great power and it enters her and she has this moment of, you know, she is now embodying this great cosmic power. Mm-hmm. And I had a moment where I was kind of looking at the book and I, I think I even may have said aloud to myself, if this heals her, I'm going to stop reading it. Um, and it didn't. It was this incredible power she took in and it changed her and it gave her an awareness and it gave her this you know, now lots of people in the universe want her and want to know about who she, I mean, want her and like to take this power from her if they ever find out she has it. But the fact that it didn't heal her, it, it it's amazing to say how revolutionary that is in some of these writings, but I, I've just never seen that before in stories like this. And so I was really, really impressed with how that was done. And it, it seems to fit into a lot of what you're saying about the world of, it's a world of magic, but the magic doesn't fix everything. The magic helps us with the brokenness and you know brokenness mentally um I, I don't want to equate brokenness with disability by any means but just all of those whatever the problem is uh the brokenness is the the abled world not the disabled person the, the imperfections of being exactly of being, exactly yeah. and and yeah so i just I, I just was really impressed by that it seemed very fitting to yeah. the rest of what sanderson is doing right and he, so he he has lots of themes running through because he's got a He's got multiple, multiple magic systems that are all set in the same universe, and they all rely on some core concepts. And one of them is identity. Um, what does what does something see itself as? Whether that be a person, or whether that be a, a a wall in your house, right? A wall in your house is made up of different parts, but you see it as a wall, as a whole, right? And or you, you look at a brick wall, you don't see individual bricks. Usually, you see it as a wall, and the the same with people they have this identity that they've crafted that might include a physical disability right um and in the real world one of the one of the cleanest examples of this is the deaf community they they have an identity and it's a it's a strong identity where they they have their own language Mm -hmm. right asl is not a transliteration of english it's its own language and the the deaf community has they don't want to be viewed as less because they can't hear. Right. Right. And they, there's this, there's this weird structural problem where you might think that getting a cochlear implant, which is miraculous technology when you think about it, 
Um, it gives you some limited ability to hear some things, not very well. Uh, it would be a, a godsend and all deaf people would want it, but many of them don't because their identity is, if you're taking away something that makes them deaf, right. by, by giving them this, this assistance. Right. right. Be, Which the, because what what always leads to is the and I I'll be very clear. Um, the deaf community I know off, some some parts isn't true, but often does not consider itself part of the disabled community. So it's it's sort of adjacent right. to. But I think it's a similar thinking of. Yes. There's a real danger of saying, well, this this that that the end goal should be everyone being abled in the exact same way. And I know that the argument that comes from the deaf community often there, which I I, I want to be very clear, I'm I, I think both of us are are not in that community, yeah. but are but are are knowledgeable of that perspective that when you say like the goal should be quote unquote healing exactly as you said, you're now saying like deaf is wrong, you know, hearing the way other people can hear is right instead of being able to see it as a difference. And there, there's definitely things there's, there are different ways of looking at the world. Um, there, the case you, you think differently in ASL than you do in English that it, it would be like saying that, um, it's somehow wrong for you to speak Spanish. It's an inferior language, which it clearly isn't, right? right? And same same with ASL versus versus English. It's clearly just a different language, and it's the language that is natural to these people that have a different set of capabilities than right. us. And I, I again, I agree with you. I'm not trying to say that they're disabled. I'm using this as an example of we have the ability to change someone who is deaf into right. being cochlear implants. Aren't making them not deaf. It's making them less deaf. I mean, in my own situation, you know, the one of the sort of dreams is that with stem cell technology or things like this, that eventually you can literally like regrow a human limb mm-hmm. and reattach it. And I'm someone who my disability is now very much a part of my identity. I think I would probably take that, though, because it came to me later in life. But I've certainly known many folks who would say, no, that's not what they want. You know, that they're they live in a wheelchair that is um, a different way of interacting with the world, but is no better mm-hmm. or worse. And I think you're right. The way Sanderson deals with that. And because also, as we talked about, there are other characters in the same book who are disabled, but who are able to use a different kind of magic that, that heals them. But, but as I understand it, um, it, it heals them to their identity of their self. And so if they don't yes. see themselves as an, as a, as a person with that scar or that missing limb, it might heal it. But if they do understand at this point that they are a person without that limb or without that scar, with that scar or with you know whatever else the it is to their body, that this magic won't heal that because it understands. No, you you are healed. You are in your proper yeah. self. Yes, and so and like that. That's the comparison. Is somebody who gets it in the book is Belopin, who he only had one arm when he was introduced in, um, in Words of Radiance, and he made lots of jokes and he disarms people and he he's like he he uses it as a as a his humor as a prop and a crutch to make sure that people don't think less of him right, right? because he he gets there first which is a thing that a lot of a, a, a non-trivial number of people with with some kind of physical issue do or mental issue do. they they have an issue and so they know that it's visible and people are going to see it and so they they get there first and they bring it up first sometimes it's humor Sometimes it's just being upfront about mm-hmm. it, right? And the Lopin makes the point to to Risen, he's making jokes about about her not having legs, and he's like, "You got to learn some good legless failing jokes, so you can get there before other people and make them laugh at you instead of pity." Right. And she goes, "Well, I shouldn't have to disarm people with you." She goes, 
I shouldn't have to tell people humorous things to, to to make them think about me that way. And he goes, "You're right. You shouldn't." Yeah. And <laughs> because he he. He never thought of himself as only being one armed, but he still had he he had lost it in an injury, and so he, like you're saying, it came to him later in life, and so he so believed he behaved like he was a two armed person, but then you humored disarm the fact that he only had one. The the and constant use of magic, the word disarm, yeah. I, I think, is somewhat intentionally as a pun, but it just has to be called out to some extent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um, but it, but that's the Lopin would as a character be all about exactly that, right. Yeah. That's his. He, like he tells, um, he tells one-armed Herdazian jokes constantly. Um, he's a, it, a the Herdazian are a different ethnicity on the planet, so he tells these one-armed jokes about this leather ethnicity that other people look down on. Right. right? He he gets there first on all the things that they would look down on him for, and shows I don't care that you look down on me for being a Herdazian or being one-armed. I'm gonna be bright and cheerful and happy and make fun of you, right. um, and make fun of me and make fun of everybody, and he he gets it but then when he gets magic he gets his arm healed mm-hmm. uh, because he believes that he's a two-armed person that is temporarily without an arm right uh that's that's core to him and it, what makes him him but like his uh, kaladin the who who clearly has clinical depression he has slave brands on his forehead and he doesn't get rid of them when he gets his magical healing the slave brands persist because he he they're uh, they're core the fact that he went through slavery is core to his identity mm. And so he he doesn't he doesn't lose those slave rights, right? And, and that's so interesting to me on a couple of levels. First, on the with the humor part, I mean, any one of you who have spent more than ten minutes with me has heard me make those same kind of jokes. Um, yep. You know, I'll get so angry, I'll leap to my foot. Um, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I love that conversation about like I shouldn't have to. You're right, you shouldn't, because it gets to the same question of the ideal versus the reality. And I yep. think it's one that is often dealt with by by anyone who is made to feel like they are not part they are not the normal, whether for mm-hmm. physical, mental, um, because of of race or gender or orientation or, or any of those things. And there's always that question of I shouldn't have the world should be more accommodating to me. And I, that that sounds like it's a uh, like a, a shelfish position. I don't mean that at all. I mean like the world yeah. should not be set up in a way that someone different feels othered but then yep. also that as a survival technique often that is the thing that has to be done or that that can be helpful mm-hmm. to be done and and there's a lot you know and that there's a lot of um debate about that back and forth the other thing though is and here i'm 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 getting very curious about where the character of the lopan goes because the way you say it makes total sense and i think it's very possible that that will be who he is for the rest of the books I also know that at the end of this book, he does have a real moment of self-awareness, of recognizing yeah. that he is this you – know, he's the class clown in many ways. And he right. he thinks he is always making – you know, he makes fun of people. He teases them, but in a way that he feels like he's spreading joy. And But then it turns out that, that people just get really down sometimes when he ribs on them. Yeah, much. exactly. He's right? that he, – he, 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 uh, He's that person who doesn't understand that actually he can do a lot of harm even though he thinks he's doing good. And in a part of the book that I really appreciate, he doesn't get defensive. He doesn't do that, oh, but I didn't mean to hurt you. Why are you being so sensitive? He really mm-hmm. takes it in and has this wonderful moment of self-reflection. And then he swears an ideal based on it. I will I will protect everyone even if I have to protect you from myself. Right. 
and these words are accepted. And he's like, but that's not usually a third ideal. And his friend's like, it is for you. Yeah, I love that, that he didn't even mean to do it, but he but he winds up doing it. But well, That's actually also a payoff from him swearing the second ideal as mm-hmm. well. Uh, because he he also, like, after all of the action, when everybody, when when it wouldn't be beneficial story-wise for him to swear an ideal, he does. And he is pissed that it didn't come at a, at a useful climactic plot moment because he gets when when those are, right. right? The big battle happens, and then in the aftermath, everybody's standing around. He's like, man, I don't understand why that guy got to swear an oath, and I didn't. See, I can say these words, and he says the words, and then they're accepted. He's like, what? <laughs> excuse yeah. me? And, and in this book, but, he complains that the oath he swears, no one's around to watch, you know? But but where I was right. going with this is, certainly I know, and I, I definitely went through this, and I, in the literature, I know many other people do, they're... For someone who does like have a major physical change in, in their body, or losing a limb or losing a, a sense or something like that, it, it can often take a long time to accept that. And yep. so when I hear you talk about how he always saw himself as a two-armed person, I'm thinking like, okay, that per- so that's a person who has who has to do, to process this some more and do some work on it. Mm-hmm. And I, if the story is that the magic heals him because he never saw himself that way, I think it's a perfectly fine story. I'm going to be very interested, though, to see if, if Sanderson does take that a little further and get into maybe on some level, eventually he does need to come to understand that he was, at least pre-magic, a one-armed person. And that maybe the magic kind of did with Kaladin. It stops creating that second arm for him. Um, right. I don't know if that's where it would go, obviously, or, but I think it could be yeah. a very interesting direction to explore. Right. Or if we run into somebody else who who has lost some, some limb. like So there's another... Uh, there's another person who's lost an eye who's going to be swearing oaths at one point, and I'm actually really curious to see if Gaz regrows his eye. Mm. Uh, because Gaz has really internalized, he, he sees through that eye, but he only sees darkness, and he knows the darkness is there, but that's also because he's a flawed person, he's a gambling addict, right. right? And he knows that that darkness can overtake him, and he sees that darkness as an external thing, but only through his missing eye. And so I'm really curious to see if he keeps that darkness there mm-hmm. um, as part of it. Yeah. If that's one of the things that he has to internalize and understand. No, yeah, that'll, uh, that'll be really interesting to explore. Um, so we're about uh, the 120 mark. I want to kind of wrap up. Is there any kind of last thoughts mm-hmm. that you didn't get to share, Rob, or that you want to kind of put out there uh, in terms of this new book coming out? Um, or just general about these questions we're talking about? I'm... I'm really curious about the technical aspects of the magic system, but the technical aspects are all wrapped up in the moral aspects because of the oaths. Right. So everybody swears different oaths, and everybody has a different journey that they need to go on. And I think that that's the the big question: is some of these journeys are are people going to take them, or are they going to not? That some of the some of the characters die at crucial moments and lose their whole journey, right? Um, some of the characters decide to make bad decisions. Everybody hates Moash because, but is he going to get a redemption arc? Right. Um, Moash did bad things. Uh, it was capital bad, capital things, <laughs> and he's yeah, he's the he's the designated um, anti-hero at this point. Is he redeemable? Yeah. Because. They, they make the case Dalinar has done more horrible things than most of the people you encounter in the books. And you're, everybody's on board the Dalinar is a great person now, Train. You know, it's um, funny because one episode that I want to do at some point, we've done a lot about redemption arcs in general. 
I really want to do something about how much does it change an audience's perception of a character's ability to be redeemable as to whether or not they become a point of view character. Because there's... Oh, that's... You know, we look at characters like um, uh, uh, Zuko in Avatar or one of my personal favorites, Mm -hmm. Katra in She-Ra or um, one -hmm. that's much more controversial of Ben Solo um, uh, in uh, the newest Star Wars movies. Uh, Kylo Ren, and there's always this question of like who does or doesn't deserve a, a redemption story, and that the redemption stories are the ones who, because we as the audience get to see their struggle, we get to see their suffering, we get to see either what caused them or how bad they feel, and so we start feeling like, oh, okay, so they deserve a redemption story. Reality is everybody well, still has a backstory, everybody has a, right. a direction they can go, and, and so I think it's a really interesting question of like how do we perceive the backstory the the redemption of others based on how much we do or don't know about them. Right. And I think that the line has to be whether they want to be redeemed. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, whether or not, they, like, so uh, probably the, the best really popular one is Thanos. Right. In, in, um, he got a whole movie where he was the protagonist, right? And he was a viewpoint character for a large portion of his movie, right? And, and we're talking about Infinity he's not War redeemable. Here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're talking about uh, we're talking about Infinity and Infinity War. He is painted as sympathetic, honestly. Like it's a movie about Thanos, mm-hmm. um, and he he has a goal and he wants to pursue it, but he doesn't want to be better. He doesn't. He believes that that the the universe is the problem and it needs to change. And that's the the opposite of the way that Sanderson takes the arts in these right. books, which is anybody that believes that's the case, that they're perfect and the universe needs to change is wrong. Um, anybody who believes that they need to change, and the, the universe is also imperfect, but they, they need to work on their own shit, yeah. um, is redeemable, right? And it's so interesting because um, uh, there was an episode that I thought was going to go live this week, and I, I promise you if you're waiting for it, it will come. We just wanted to squeeze this one in given the release date of the new book. Mm-hmm. But there's an episode I've already recorded that will go up next week that's specifically about ethical questioning in Star Wars, the original series. Um, and I don't, don't mm-hmm. know how well you know it, but one of the episodes we talk about is The Conscience of the King, which I basically describe as a more morally complex Thanos story. Because it's a story about... Uh, <laughs> um, do, do you know the episode <laughs> I'm talking about? Trek, the original series? Did you mean Star Trek, the original series? Because you said Star Oh, Wars. gosh, yeah. I, as the Star Wars person, the fact <laughs> that I confuse those names all the time is quite confusing, I'm sure. But yes, I mean Star Trek, um, the original series. Yeah, like, I, I'm, yes, I'm familiar with The Conscience of the King. That's why I was, I took me a second to catch up with you because you were, you like, said The Conscience of the King. I was like, what? <laughs> oh, right. Okay, got right. it. Right. And because that's a. <laughs> I was like, I thought this was going to be about Han Solo. Like, yeah, oh, God, no. Um, don't make that man a king. Terrible idea. But that's where. Well, no, no, no. But I mean, in terms of like. Yeah, of course. Redemption. <laughs> Right. Right. But because in this one, it's a character who has a Thanos-like question of he winds up killing half the population in order to save the other half. But whereas mm-hmm. Thanos sees this as we should do this now because it could be a problem in the future, that character is facing it right now in the immediacy. Um, and we also get – so we get to see so much more of that character's suffering and also all of his guilt around it later. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just a very interesting way of like – exploring that redemption story from a different direction um yeah well rob thank you so much for being a part of this um uh really great to have you back on uh for folks who are kind of like oh that guy sounds kind of awesome where can i find more of what he's doing um 
what are ways people can check out uh, other podcasts you're on or other things you're doing these days? Um, so I tend to just randomly guest star and stuff. I should probably produce my own content, but <laughs> I'm kind of lazy. Um, so I, I haven't been on the Geek Bracket recently, but I love to be on it. And I think probably next month sometime I'm going to be in the Geek Bracket. Judge JP runs that. It's really mm-hmm. good. Um, I tend to guest on a Good Luck High Five with Maria and Megan for every new set for Magic the Gathering stuff. If you don't care about Magic the Gathering, then don't watch it. If you do, do. They're funny. They're good people. Um, and otherwise, I just kind of have checked out of all social media because 2020 is terrible. That's and a so... pretty fair, <laughs> fair uh, decision. I, um, I I think there's a real sort of interesting coping strategy there. There's those of us who have checked out entirely, and there's been, you know my social media content production has just increased about 500% in terms of the like writing stuff and producing more. I'm now doing like four times as many podcasts a week as I used to be doing. I I listen to a ton of podcasts and I'm to the point I don't go on Twitter. Um, My rule on Facebook is actually I'm not allowed to use my scroll wheel. So like, Oh, that's such a good way to do it. uh, I look at my notifications. I can look at the thing that I looked at for the notification. I can look at a group, but I can't scroll down in my feed. Um, so, uh, I check it to see whether everybody's tagged me basically, uh-huh. and then I just bail. I like it. Um, and so that I, if I'm, I'm to, the, to that point of just not wanting to be involved with the world because it's kind of terrible this year. I can understand that. It's, it's kind of terrible. And I, I'm looking at the calendar and saying, you know, I think it's going to be five months before things aren't terrible. And so I'm just waiting. I spent a week of my life watching the news and counting numbers in different states. And I am, I think I would have oh, had I did, real trouble if I didn't do that. But I'm very I, glad oh, my I did time that, doing that. But I didn't over. talk with people about yeah. it. Yeah. Because I was like, I can't. <laughs> yeah. I I will have short face-to-face conversations, but I can't I can't get into this stuff online yeah. anymore. I, it just hurts me no, too much. So. I, I get that. Well, yep. I'm glad we could pull you out of that shell for at least a little while here. <laughs> um, uh, thank you so much for being a part of this conversation. And to everybody else, um, we'd love to hear what you have to say about this conversation. Um, if you're a big fan of the books, let us know, you know, do you have a different take on one of these questions or about how they're going to be discussed in the next book? By the time this goes live, the new book will be revealed. But this episode is for people who have not yet read the book. So even if you have read the new book, I ask, please don't post any spoilers in the comments uh, or discussion about this episode. But definitely talk about, you know, what do yeah. you think we got right? What do you think we got wrong? Yeah. If you hadn't read the book. Um, okay. Yeah. It, like, it came out today. And I've been careful about what I've been saying in this conversation yeah. to limit it to only things that I speculated about before it came out. And, today, and so. uh, Rob is saying today, because we were talking today on Tuesday, the 17th, this episode will go live yeah. on Thursday for people who are very confused. <laughs> so just to uh, yeah, put yeah. that in people's minds. But for those of you who haven't read the book, I mean, I, I, I'm someone who hasn't really read them. Um, I'll accept that last one. I really find these questions really fascinating. Would they to hear from you? Um, what do you think of the questions that are being described? Where do you see these issues coming up in other media um are you completely lost by this conversation and so we need to be more careful about that let me know that too <laughs> all this feedback is really helpful you can find us by searching for superhero ethics on either facebook or twitter or emailing us at superheroethics at gmail.com you can also find all that by going to strandedpanda.com and searching uh, and then just clicking on the superhero ethics uh tab that'll give you all the information about all everything to do with this podcast on that website, you can also find a lot of other great podcasts that are going on. 
Uh, we have podcasts about the MCU-verse, the DC-verse, the Star Trek-verse, and they do tend to get those words right, whereas I don't. Um, and the Star Wars universe, which I have another podcast on. That's a podcast I also run. And on that podcast, we're currently doing a week-by-week uh, review and discussion of The Mandalorian. We're actually doing uh, live watch parties on 7.30 on Friday nights at 7.30 Central, 8.30 Eastern. Uh, and all the information and, – and then we have a new episode about it coming out hopefully on Friday. Sometimes it's going to be a few days later. But great episodes where we talk about all the great things about The Mandalorian, uh, even talk about some problems we have such as you know frog egg eating babies. Uh, and then go into all the stuff about the where does this fit in the lore, what are we excited about, how does it all come together. So please check those out. Thank you so much for being a fan. Uh, thank you, Rob, for being a part of this, and have a great day. <laughs>